When you find your seat, also look for your Bible and look with me in 1 Peter chapter 5. We have arrived at the end of Peter's first letter. We're making history in all kinds of ways, folks. We've never had a 9.30 service. Not that big of a deal. 9.30 is not a, pretty, not a very extraordinary time to have church. I was thrilled to see so many people here at 8 a.m. We didn't know if anybody would come. 8 a.m.'s pretty early. This front row was filled with high school students. Nothing makes sense anymore, folks. There was a whole row of high school students in church at 8 a.m., and they showed up early. They were here at 7.45 in some cases. I don't know if they're surfing now or what's happening, but... God never fails to surprise me through the grace of this church. And we are not only making a very small minor footnote in our church's long history, we're also coming to the end of the letter of 1 Peter, and it's been quite a journey. If you'll find and hold your place there in 1 Peter chapter 5, let me tell you about an interesting conversation I had with someone who drove by who I wasn't expecting, and when it was over, I wasn't particularly happy to have talked to way back when we were missionaries in Chihuahua, Mexico. This is a long, long time ago. In fact, my older son, Ryan, was an infant. He was still in the infant car chair. Um, is that what you call it? Car chair. What's a car chair? A car seat. Thank you. <laughs> Folks, imagine what might be happening by the time I try to preach three times, okay? <laughs> We might just show a video. I don't know if, if the brain doesn't start cooperating any better than that. Car seat. He needed an infant car seat, and like many infants, he had a particularly beloved whoopee, which we bought at Old Navy, and it was required that that be on his right cheek so that he could sleep. Any other parents, have you know what I'm talking about? Your kid has that one thing? Well, I'm telling you that because right in the middle of a bright, sunny day in Chihuahua, Mexico, I left the church. I was actually helping in the background at a women's event, and I went outside about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and there where I had parked my pickup was an empty piece of pavement. My truck had been stolen. Now, I'm kind of scatterbrained, and I thought maybe I just don't remember, so I circled around two blocks, and finally, when I was about two blocks away from the church, I thought there's no way I parked all the way out here and don't remember doing that. My truck has actually been stolen. And I went back and kind of in a memorial fashion just stood looking at the empty space, <laughs> and then it hit me, not only am I out of a truck, which I don't know if I'll be able to replace, I'm also out of sleep because... The whoopee is in the truck, and the evil person that stole the truck also probably stole sleep for an indefinite period of time, because who knows when we're getting back to the United States to buy a replacement whoopee, which he probably won't like anyway. And I mean, I'm, I'm spinning, as you do sometimes with an infant, and as I'm standing there reeling mentally, somebody pulled up, a woman pulled up, rolled the window down and said, you look upset, are you okay? And I said, not really, I think my truck was stolen. And she said, well, God's still on the throne, and rolled the window up and sped away. <laughs> well, I love biblical truth in all times and all contexts, but yeah, God's still on the throne. It had not occurred to me to question whether God was still on the throne. I just didn't think the truth was very timely, and I thought it could have been phrased with a little bit more empathy. Maybe I'm sorry but God is still on the throne. Even that would have helped a little tiny bit. Now, why am I telling you this? Because when you come to the instructions at the end of 1 Peter chapter 5, 
If you haven't been paying attention to Peter's tone and content, and if, especially if you don't remember Peter's life, he might seem a little disconnected from reality. Because the whole letter has been about suffering. In the sixth verse of the very first chapter, Peter says to his readers, you are being grieved by all kinds of different trials. The whole letter is about how to bear up when life is hard as a Christian. How to show up as a disciple of Jesus when circumstances and suffering and even people are dead set against you. That's what the letter's about. But you might forget that because the instructions that Peter gives here are really explicit. They're really clear. This is one of my favorite passages of all time in the New Testament. Verses 6 and 7 in particular have ministered to me and helped me and comforted me since I was a college student. But if you don't remember that Peter was a man who was deeply acquainted with suffering himself, a man among all the apostles who was well acquainted with failure because you may remember Peter once denied Jesus himself. He denied with oaths that he ever met Jesus. Then he saw Jesus face to face at the moment of his greatest cowardice and betrayal and the gospel says that Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter is also a man and he knows it because Jesus promised Peter that this would happen by way of restoring him. Peter thought he had lost everything and would certainly not be in the apostolic band any longer, may not even be considered a follower of Jesus. No, Peter, when Jesus restored Peter in a private, painful conversation on a beach, he asked him repeatedly, Peter, do you love me? When that final answer was given and Peter gave up and said, Lord, I, I don't know. I don't want to talk anymore about me, but you know everything. Jesus promised Peter that the next time Peter was tested, Peter would be faithful all the way into death and that, in fact, Jesus said in quiet, careful language that Peter would be crucified just as Jesus had been. The New Testament doesn't tell us that that happened, but church history absolutely does. So when you read these instructions that follow, you need to know that you're being taught about suffering and being told in some language that may seem hard to be put into practice and may seem disconnected from reality from someone who knows suffering and knows it well and is well equipped, better equipped maybe than anybody, to teach you how to suffer as a Christian and when you suffer, how to find God's grace and God's glory in it. I want to start showing this to you by looking at Peter's sign-off in verse 12. This is how he says goodbye. By Silvanus, that's Silas, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring to you that this is, don't miss this, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. In other words, the hard words that I've written you, the things that seem hard to put into practice, the things that seem impractical, it's all the true grace of God. This whole letter, even when it deals with hard things, is good news. It's reminding you and giving you instructions regarding the true grace of God. Stand for a minute. Then Peter gives us a hint at his life circumstances. She who is at Babylon, which is a symbol, a coded word, if you will, for the city of Rome, wicked, pagan, 
idolatrous, murderous. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Mark is not Peter's biological son. He's son in the faith. Mark is the man that's going to write the gospel called the gospel of Mark. Peter has a small circle of people around him. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. In other words, everything I've written and the hard paragraph I'm about to read to you, it all represents the true grace of God. It's not a matter of earning, it's a matter of believing. It's not a matter of earning, it's a matter of trusting. What are our instructions? Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. How many of you would consider yourselves humble? Well answered. Good job. If you popped up or raised your hand, we were going to be concerned about you because humility is a strange thing. The minute you notice it, you've lost it. You ever caught yourself being humble? you ever walked away from a situation thinking, I hope they realize how cool I am? That was very sweet of me. I didn't have to do that. Peter is talking about, about choosing humility, and that's hard to do. Most people only think of themselves. And Peter here is inviting suffering people to think of someone else, specifically to think of God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that He may lift you up, when's it say? In the proper time. The first thing you are to do when you suffer is to choose to humble yourself under God until He lifts you up. The first Christian response The hallmark of Jesus, the signature of Jesus in suffering is not to fight back or to question or to doubt, though all of those things might be part of your journey and your process. What Peter tells us to do is humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. What does it mean to humble yourself under God's hand? Because all of this is metaphorical language. God obviously is spirit, Jesus told us. He always has been and always will be. Jesus, the Son of God, became to save us a human being, died on a literal cross, was buried in an actual grave, was actually dead, and then, as promised in the Scriptures that I'm reading to you, He took His life back so that He could save anybody who trusts Him. But the Father is spirit. He doesn't have hands. What does Peter mean? Well, If you're old enough to be in this room, it's pretty obvious that's just poetic language. That's a word picture. Here's what the word picture means. God is mighty and God is in charge. His strong hand rules over all the world. He's in charge of people and He's in charge of circumstances. He can lower people or that same mighty hand that brought people low can also get beneath them and lift them up. The woman who I maintain to this day somewhat insensitively shouted at me, God's still on the throne before speeding off to resume her day, was actually telling me a great biblical truth. 
Whether I have a truck or I don't have a truck, whether I live or die, prosper or suffer, God is always and only in charge. And Peter says that you need to humble yourself beneath Him. And what that means specifically in this word picture is someone who humbles themselves before God means this, you accept what God is doing in your life. And that can take some time. Peter himself is proof of that process, that people who think they're in charge of their life, who act as if they're in charge of their life, who experience in much of their life, most of the time, a great measure of control, might get confused and think that they actually are in control of their lives. Then suffering comes in and upsets and upends everything, and humbling yourself Below the mighty hand of God means that you accept what He's doing, even if you cannot understand it, even if you think it's too painful, even if you think you won't make it. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. And verse 7 is vitally important, and here's where we're going to spend most of our time. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Don't miss this. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. The instruction is when you're suffering, get below God's hand. Don't fight Him. Don't question Him. Don't deny Him as Peter once did. Instead, submit to His work in your life even if, and I would say, especially if you don't understand it. Take shelter under His hand. Get beneath Him because He's in charge of everything and the same God that brought you low has the capacity to get beneath your life and pick you back up and exalt you. The question is, how do you do that? What does that look like? If you're going through a hard time and you are committed to humbling yourself under the hand of God, what is it that you're supposed to do? The answer is verse 7. You humble yourself under the mighty hand of God by casting all your burdens on Him. This is, a, this is another word picture. The idea is that you are burdened down with care. I have been at times in my life so anxious and so fearful that it actually feels like a physical weight. Anybody been there? Wow. It's a better response than I expected. We're living in an anxious time. That's why 1 Peter 5 and 6, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7 are so important. You will suffer. All Christians do. Peter's going to explain that letter later. What you do when you suffer is you nestle yourself beneath God's hand. And even though you don't understand what he's doing, you can't imagine the purpose and you have no idea how long it may last, you take humble shelter beneath him by throwing all of your anxieties on him. In other words, the anxiety and the worry that is weighing you down, you, the Greek word literally is to throw. You throw that off your shoulders and into his strong hands. And notice that the verb your English teacher was right, sorry, we all should have paid better attention in grammar. Notice that it says casting. Why is that? Because you'll be doing this all the time. I don't know if you've noticed, maybe your anxieties and worries and fears are not 
like mine, but mine seem to be boomerangs. I throw them away, and I experience a moment of peace and clarity and relief and strength, and then whoosh, here they come seemingly twice as fast. Has anybody experienced this? Here's what that looks like. I'll just give you a little slice of my life to make this as practical as I possibly can. I'm a pastor. That means that this church matters a great deal to me, more than I can possibly explain to you, and I put a lot of time and love and effort and energy into what happens here every day of the week, and especially it's very visible on Sundays. That means that when I blow it in this pulpit and preach a turkey of a sermon, I go home and I'm assailed by fears and worries. And here's what that sounds like. Well, that was terrible. I had all week to prepare for that, and they didn't deserve to hear anything that bad. They probably, none of them will ever return. That's probably it. And it'll take us a while, but probably within two or three months, we'll have to sell the church property to Target department store, or maybe Amazon will expand its ever-increasing footprint, and maybe the grocery store next door will be even bigger because it'll be on our campus. I mean, I can spiral. Can anybody else do this? What am I to do when that happens? I am to take that anxiety and name it before the God who knows me and loves me so much that He sent His Son to die for me so that I could be received by the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and glory, and tell Him explicitly what my troubles are and throw them onto His strong grip. Here's how Oswald Chambers explained it. Deliberately tell God that you will not fret about that thing. All our fret and worry is caused by calculating without God. You see, what this is really about is a struggle for control. A counselor and a pastor and professor that has taught Jeff Lopez and me a great deal, David Paulison, explained it like this. Worriers act as if they might be able to control the uncontrollable. Central to worry is the illusion that we can control things. The illusion of control lurks inside your anxiety. Anxiety and control are two sides of one coin. Listen, when we can't control something, we worry about it. It's too much for you. You can't handle it. You're not that strong. You've never been that good. You will never be that wise. You're not that loving to control your own life. The best thing to do is to take humble shelter under God's hand and go back to Him time and again saying, Father, I fought you for control. I took my problems back. I reacted in anger and fear. I've been operating under my own direction for a while, but I'm back. And I'm giving you my anxieties and my fears. I'm throwing those on to you so that you can take hold of them. And when they return, because for me they return, you do it again and again and again. And if you do that long enough and carefully enough, you will soon discover someday that it's gone. And you really have learned to trust God in a difficult time. Because God is at work. His sovereign hand is not random. He's not chaotic and forgetful the way we are. Notice in verse 6 a very important phrase and perhaps the most difficult part of obeying what Peter is teaching us here. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. What does that mean? When is the proper time? God alone knows. 
when I have learned, when I have changed, when I have repented, when I have been strengthened, when I've been made more like Jesus and more useful to others and better in my character that only suffering seems to be able to teach me, then the same God who put me in the fire can scoop me out and exalt me and show me and show you as a, to a watching world as a trophy of what God alone can do. First, most, humble yourself under God's mighty hand. But that's not all. He's going to go on to instruct us, and now there seems to be a subject change, but there's not. There's an American cliche that you see on bumper stickers regarding theology and regarding God, and let me just caution you on the front side, never get your theology from bumper stickers. <laughs> Sometimes the point of the bumper sticker is it's catchy and it's clever, but it's not always true, and it certainly can never be complete. Here's one, God is my co-pilot. Well, that's stupid. <laughs> if God's kind enough to get in the aircraft with you, let him fly. <laughs> Call shotgun all the time, but put him in charge of the controls. Here's another one, not obviously as stupid. And this one's not obviously as bad because there's a measure of truth in it, and it sounds like this, let go and let God. Pretty good. That's actually what verse 6 seems to be telling us. Let go of your worries and give them to God. But Peter would be the first to tell you, and he does in the very next verse, you don't take your hands off altogether. You actually have something vitally important to do. You're going to accept by God's work in your life by continually giving Him your anxiety, but you're not done. You actually have something very active, very aggressive that you need to do. Verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In other words, once you've given your anxieties to God, stay awake. It's not a matter of letting go and going to sleep. It is a matter of letting go of your anxiety, but staying alert. Staying vigilant because, Peter says, your adversary, your enemy, the devil, a spirit being that Jesus believed in and taught us a great deal about, here's what he's like. He's like a roaring lion prowling around seeking who he can gulp down. And here's how that works. Christians spend a lot of time, in my opinion, unnecessarily wondering what the source of their suffering is. For instance, we say, I'm under spiritual attack. You might be. Or you might be suffering the consequences of your own foolish choices. Or you might just be a normal human being who's called to suffering along with the rest of us. Or you might be victimized by the evil of another. It doesn't matter so much why you're suffering what Peter would alert us, when you're suffering, the devil will be especially active in that moment. And finding you anxious and finding you fearful, he will come and try to paralyze you with even greater fear and take greater advantage of you. He's like a terrorist that sets off the second bomb when the first responders arrive. 
like a rat that loves being around trash and is drawn to suffering and chaos and pain and seeks to enhance it. What Peter would tell you to do, number two, is this, resist the devil so that he can do no harm. As you struggle with your anxieties and give them to God and tell your Father who loves you that you trust His plan in your life, the devil will attack in that moment and try to deceive you and lie to you and do you harm and do away with the good work you've just done. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. How is the devil resisted? First, by believing what God has already told you. Peter says in verse 9, firm in your faith. In other words, the battle when you're suffering is whether you will believe God or yourself or the devil. Whether you will believe God or someone else. Peter has already told you in verse 7 that the reason you cast your anxieties on God is because He cares for you. Did you see that? Casting all your anxieties because he, on Him because He cares for you. It's literally a word, a word play in Greek. Here's what it sounds like. Some translations nailed it and showed you the word play in English. You can throw all your worries on God. You can throw all your cares on God because He cares for you. You don't have to be weighed down with care because He cares. That is the fundamental and foundational truth undergirding the Christian life. That in all circumstances, whether you're being blessed or you're being tested, your heavenly Father loves you and cares for you. And suffering that makes you wonder whether God exists or if He exists, whether He cares, that is only fear, that is only anxiety, that is only the paralyzing roar of the devil lying to you saying, no one cares, you're all alone, it's all random, it's all chaotic, the bad people win, you're going to suffer now and it's going to get worse until you die. None of that is true. You need to keep believing what God has told you, that He loves you and, very important in our age, you need to remember that suffering is normal. Look carefully again at verse 9. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood. What's it say? Throughout the world. Everyone's going through this. This is really important. And I'm nearly done, but please listen to this. Great damage was done to the lives of Christians across the West, but particularly in the United States, after the United States ended World War II. We entered a time of unprecedented prosperity. The advance of technology and communication, the explosion of private ownership of homes, the ability of the average family to own a car and use the brand new interstates to travel coast to coast and see the rest of the country, that along with many, many problems that the nations faced, that brought us as a country into a time of unprecedented progress and prosperity. We're still enjoying a lot of the early energy of success and wealth from all those decades ago. 
And whether they were malicious or simply mistaken, a great number of American Christians, led by Christian pastors and teachers, sometimes through simple ignorance, other times through malicious biblical teaching to enrich the pastor and the preacher, started telling Christians that progress and blessing and ever-advancing success were normal, and that if you were suffering, something had gone wrong. And you needed to get it right and get in a position where God could bless you again and all the suffering would disappear. That's not a New Testament message. Jesus, the Son of God, the only truly righteous man to ever walk this earth, suffered every day of His public ministry which ended on a cross. His disciples, with the exception of one man who they tried to kill but did not succeed, all of his apostles died as martyrs, including the man writing this letter. Suffering is normal. When you suffer, it does not necessarily mean that anything is wrong in your individual life. These kinds of sufferings, Peter says, engulf Christians in the entire world. So if you will adjust your expectations and remember two vital things, that suffering is normal and will come into every single life, but above it all, your heavenly Father cares so much that His Son died for you, and the Father welcomes all of your cares and will bear them with His own strength until His work with you is done, and He lifts you up, you will endure suffering as a disciple of Jesus. You've been promised great things. Look at the very first chapter, and we'll read this together. This is the life that you're called to, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Notice where the emphasis, where the glory, where the reward is, according to Peter in this passage. Read it with me. Speaking of God, it says, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's what you're called to. Your greatest rewards, your best life is just ahead. For now, humble yourself under God's hand, give Him your burdens, and resist your enemy who would make you disbelieve God. And here's what you can expect, verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself, notice the emphasis, God will do this Himself. He won't delegate this to an angel. He won't send another Christian. God Himself will do this. He will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, number three, wait until God makes you strong and stable. God who knows the proper time to lift you out of the trouble He already knows you're in, after you have suffered a little while, notice, it's not going to last forever. It's only going to be a little bit of time. The God of all grace who has nothing but grace and love for you, He will personally himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In other words, what I'm telling you, church, is wait until God makes you strong and stable, and the way you do that is you stand firm in God's grace. You don't think that your Christian life is about earning anything. You 
fight off the idea that you deserve anything. You remember that a great loving God who is in control of the whole world has decided for His own purposes and because of His own goodness to call you His own child and you stand firm in that grace and you wait until the God of all grace who has called you to His glory has done His work in you. In other words, you stand firm until God's work is done. When will the trial end? God knows. He can bring it to end at any moment. He will do it at the proper time when His work in you is done. So don't be afraid. The God of all grace who cares for each of His children as if we were the only ones alive, He has a purpose for you. He has a plan for you. He has, by His grace, a great reward and blessing, not only here on earth, but awaiting you in heaven. And He never promised that you would not suffer, but He did promise that you would never be alone, and that in His time, He would lift you up, and He would Himself look at what you can expect. The God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore you confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. No wonder, Peter says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. In other words, let's keep him in charge. Let's get under his hand. Wait for him to lift us up. Let's keep an eye out for the devil so that we do not forget what God has promised, and let's wait on our gracious God who will bear our burdens until he picks us up. Would you pray with me, please? Could I invite you, in fact, to just take a moment all to yourself and be very honest with yourself and with the Lord. You weighed down by anxiety. Your father cares. He cares more than you can understand. He cares more actually than you can ever believe. When you experience God in glory, I'm convinced that you and I will be delighted and surprised by how good He actually is. And if we have a regret, it will be that we did not trust Him fully with what we thought was so daunting and so terrible. So let me make it really personal and practical. I won't look around. I just want to pray with you and pray for you. I'm going to pray.